Under the Controlled Substances Act and Corollary State Law, the growth, trafficking, sale, possession, or consumption of psychedelics may be a felony punishable by imprisonment, fines, forfeiture of property, or some combination thereof. Psychedelical X is for general information only. Information provided on the show does not constitute legal advice, nor does your listening to the show create an attorney-client relationship with the host. Hello, I'm attorney Gary Smith, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Psychedelic Alex, The Law of Psychedelics, my ongoing exploration of the question of the law of psychedelics. Hi, everybody. This is Gary Smith. On today's episode of Psychedelic Alex, I'm having my buddy, fellow attorney John Dennis, back on the show to talk about the regulations being crafted to support Oregon's new psilocybin program. You may be aware in the last election, Oregon passed a psilocybin law, and it's in the midst of building that program. John's been involved in the rules making, and he's here to talk about it. Enjoy. Good. All right. Well, John Dennis, welcome back to Psychedelic Alex, the Law of Psychedelics, my ongoing exploration of the question of the Law of Psychedelics. And along those lines, very convenient, you, sir, happen to be a fellow attorney in the realm of psychedelics. And you've been on the show before, and I'm really glad to have you back. Thank you so much, Gary. I'm really uh, glad to be back. Yeah. Um, it's been a, kind of a, a lot of excitement since the last uh, interview, and in, I think that was in June. Uh, yeah, thereabouts. And when you were here last time, we were talking all about Prop 109 up in Oregon, and I asked you to come back today because you told me there's a lot going on. So uh, let me just give you the unceremonious opening question, John. What the hell's going on in Oregon? Oh, great. <laughs> Yeah, so a couple of things I want to get out of the way first before we dive in too deep. Um, I know you give your disclaimer uh, that says there's no attorney relationship that's formed with the host. Uh, I want to extend that to the guest. <laughs> uh, I'm not your lawyer if you're listening to this. Um, this conversation is a continuation of that prior uh, interview. So for kind of the core concepts uh, of 109, Measure 109, Oregon Psilocybin Law, it's probably useful to go back and review that because if, you, if you're if you not kind of familiar with the basic tenets of it, um, this might be a little bit, um, not not make a ton of sense. So it might be a useful uh, backlog to go listen to that before uh, delving into this. For sure, um, for and sure. And you know, uh, John, in, in fairness too, for any of the viewers or listeners who maybe didn't watch the first episode, maybe we give them a little bit of information about you as well, just so that they understand where you're coming from. So uh, do you mind doing a little intro just to orient the audience? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so uh, my name is John Dennis. I'm a, I'm a lawyer in Oregon. Uh, I'm at a firm. I started my own practice uh, recently called Sagebrush Law. I'm here in Ontario, Oregon. It's a Shoshone and Paiute country. Uh, it's about a town of about 11,000 people on the, right along the Idaho border. Um, we have the most marijuana dispensaries of anywhere per capita in the entire United States by a factor of two. Uh, so there's plenty of uh, plenty of uh, drug law <laughs> and drugs uh, kind of uh, uh, commerce going on here in, in Ontario. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm also uh, recently I was recruited by Psychedelics Go, a company 
um, based out of California to be a consultant with them. So um, those are kind of updates on me personally. Um, and I've been working on Measure 109 uh, during, actually before it was passed, I volunteered with the campaign uh, briefly uh, or substantially, uh, mostly doing phone phone banking, calling voters and talking to them about um, organ psilocybin and what it means and what, what it is. So um, that, when I was working, uh, doing that, I kind of started seeing the writing on the wall that um, that there is going to be, like it was likely to pass uh, and that, you know, people who, who start sooner kind of get, have a certain advantage. So I kind of began kind of plotting uh, or, or just working deeply on, on the, on, on what it would mean to, to have um, like psilocybin uh, retreat centers, psilocybin businesses um, under under the Measure 109 regime. So um, that's kind of my backlog. And um, you know, with uh, Sagebrush Law, I'll do uh, some some of uh, some psilocybin kind of psychedelic law work, um, and uh, and also I, I still do have a, a pretty active uh, landlord tenant practice um, in the bulk of my career. So. Um, yeah, yeah, let me let me that's, ask. That's me in a nutshell. I didn't realize you manned phone banks during the campaign. Can I ask just for pure prurient interest, what was the weirdest call? Was there one? Um and well, you uh, know, first off, are you even allowed to say is it like a privileged call or or No, no, it wasn't privileged. Okay. Um I mean, none of them were really that bizarre. Um there were I, I had some really deep and profound conversations with people, like people who I didn't know a lot of people didn't know what psilocybin was and so when i used to tell them it's like kind of the active ingredient in magic mushrooms um that indigenous people have been taking for for at least you know i mean hundreds at least hundreds of years uh ceremonially in, in religious contexts for for healing and uh to and divination type of type of purposes um you know people uh had a, had a wide range of reactions from no way to Yes, I'm in for it, in favor of it already. Uh, to those people who are on the kind of the fence, and it was pretty exciting to to be able to talk to people who are open minded um, and were willing to to hear, you know, some of the stories out of Johns Hopkins and yeah. Imperial College and elsewhere uh, about how kind of completely transformative uh, psilocybin um, assisted therapy uh, can can be, and and how you know people, you know, I think seventy percent of uh, uh, study participants ranked it as one of the top five most meaningful experiences of their entire lives, you know, and when you hear something like that, if you've never tried psilocybin, it's, you know, how do you, it's, you know, I think, I think uh, that's part of the Hopkins study. I think Roland Griffiths himself said, it's like yeah. right up there with the birth of a child or the death of a parent, you know? Um, so, you know, that those kinds of, of stories and, and that data is, you know, is, is hard to refute with just, the, the tried and true old kind of drug war rhetoric, you know. Um, yeah, you you, you have you like leading universities, you know, promoting you that. Seem to have had a much better time on call center than I did. My 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 singular experience was in college. I did a little summer job uh, selling septic tank cleaner over the phone. <laughs> true story. So, <laughs> you, you sounded like you had a much better time than me. It's a little bit different than. But yeah, selling septic tank cleaner is by no means nearly as fun as calling people and talking to them about hallucinogenic mushrooms. So you got lucky. For sure. <laughs> Small wonder I, I mean, went to law school. It, it takes life. You know? 
It yeah. takes all types. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> different strokes for different folks. All right. So anyway, uh, now that we've laid down some some premise for the audience who wasn't already familiar with you and, and what you're up to, what's going on in Oregon? Yeah, so, um, so the Psilocybin Advisory Board is appointed by uh, Governor Brown, uh, Oregon Governor Brown, and um, there's a, basically a two-year rulemaking period where they're uh, establishing rules that are going to govern Oregon psilocybin uh, program. And I want to make it clear throughout this conversation that when we're talking about discussions at the board, uh, none of this is binding. None of this is final. Uh, the board just makes recommendations to the Oregon Health Authority, and the Oregon Health Authority ultimately you know, adopts rules. So to the extent that I say a recommendation has been made or they voted to do this, I want to just stress that um, the health authority could choose to ignore uh, or modify uh, the, the recommendation. So all of this is still to be taken sort of with a grain of salt. Um, but that being said, the board has engaged in a number of very fascinating conversations about uh, Oregon. So um, in my mind, one of the biggest questions left open by Measure 109 is um, how, so the, the law itself says that you are a, a, a facilitator who's going to offer uh, psilocybin services has to give a, a person who's going to receive psilocybin, it says must give one preparation session and must offer one, um, you know, integration session. Yeah. And it doesn't use the word one, it uses A which is sort of ambiguous. It doesn't say it must offer only one. It yeah. says that it must offer a session. It's kind of not clear whether it, if it's allowed to offer multiple sessions. And so there have been um, discussions um, at the board about um, whether there's gonna be multiple preparation sessions and multiple integration sessions that are permitted uh, for a person who's licensed to, to offer those. Can I pause you there and just get a point of clarification? Are, are you saying that some people are advocating that multiple sessions should be permitted and other people are advocating there shouldn't be? Actually, if you can believe it, yes. Um, what? what I I think, this is baffling. Well, and this is supposed to be optional additional sessions. So who, who would be opposed to something that's offered as an option? What's the argument there? So the composition of the board, uh, I believe, are enti it's entirely consisting of uh, people who have kind of advanced degrees, people with letter be letters behind their names. I did notice um, that. A lot, of a lot of therapists. And I think the concern is that if you give somebody the opportunity to, to discuss the psychedelic kind of experience, that it's kind of a slippery slope into um, to, to, to therapy. And the concern is that there's uh, going to be unlicensed practice of, of you know, mental health uh, care. Okay, um, got it. So it's your, your thing looks too much like my thing, and I can't tolerate your thing looking like my thing. Okay, got yeah, it. Yeah. Got it. And the facilitators, by, by the law, don't have to have anything above a high school diploma, uh, plus the cert certificate to, to administer psilocybin that will be offered um, through, the, through the program. So, um, you know, there's this, this gap between kind of a high school graduate uh, psilocybin facilitator and then like a master's level therapist who also, um, you know, handles uh, psilocybin. So, 
it's not really clear yet how it's going to work out. And um, at one of the recent um, training subcommittee meetings, uh, there was a therapist from Portland who commented that already we're in a mental health crisis and therapists are booked. Like they, 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 there's a wait list to get in to be seen for a new client if you're seeking therapy uh, in, in Oregon. And so the question is, if they're going to try to really narrowly limit integration sessions so that it's only uh, therapists that can do more than one, uh, where are those people going to come from when you're adding this huge number of, of new potential uh, people into that system? Um, people from within Oregon, and certainly in the early days of the program, people who are kind of tourists who are coming here solely to, to experience psilocybin in a, yeah. in a licensed and regulated setting. Yeah, that, that makes perfectly good sense. And my recollection of the statute, the integration session has to be offered, but attendance was optional, right? You as the customer or patient or whatever the, the term that's being applied to the individual partaking, they just have to be offered it, right? Correct. Yeah. And I think that's probably, it's probably fair, even though, you know, people generally should, I, in my view, um, attend those, it would put the facilitator in an awkward position if the law says they have to do it, and then they have to track down and try to force somebody to do something they don't want to do yeah. when all they really wanted to do is psilocybin. Um, but, you know, well, it's so, like getting, uh, you know, sent to detention back in high school. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, if you don't want right. to be there, you'll go, but it's not going to be a fun experience for anybody. That that makes sense. But the orientation's mandatory, though. That that you cannot escape. You've got to partake in that, right? Correct. And again, that's another. So so that so all of that I think makes it. I mean, for the the integration piece, it it would be in my view important that um, that a, a person who you know, receive psilocybin services has the option of exploring uh, that their experience with somebody who's kind of psychedelically informed, um, who's who's kind of oriented to those um, kind of mystical states or, or psychedelic states of consciousness. Yeah. Um, and I don't think it necessarily always has to to, to turn into therapy. I mean, there's um, I'm aware of uh, of programs that. Um, use life coaches, uh, which doesn't get into therapy. I mean, those lines can get blurry at times, but I think with a well-drafted uh, set of rules um, and, and good training of the facilitators, they will be clear where those lines are and, and can avoid kind of delving from one into the other. And then when somebody crosses over that line, they can be recommended to go, um, you know, make a referral to a, to an actual therapist who's licensed to do therapy, um, you know, who's also psychedelically informed, but um, so that's, that's one reason to do that. And the other big thing is that it's cost uh, effective too. Um, You know, if, if you're talking about a, a a facilitator who has a high school diploma plus a six or nine month, uh, training and a certificate to to do these services, you know, maybe it's forty dollars an hour what that that person makes in the open market uh, or so. Um, that's quite a bit less than a than a full therapist. So to have like a seamless tie-in where if a person is taking psilocybin in Oregon's system for more therapeutic type of benefit. Uh, um, they can they can find a psychedelically informed uh, uh, therapist, do the prep work, kind of build up to it, take you know get routed to a, a facilitator, 
do the prep, do the session, do the integration, and go back to their therapist and really do the work there. Um, but for people who might not be able to pay, you know, 150 to 300 or so dollars an hour for a therapist, you know, maybe maybe a $40 an hour or so um, life coach can can still get a lot of benefit without necessarily you know running afoul of the of the kind of licensing issue. So there is there have been discussions about what the appropriate scope of practice is for for a psilocybin facilitator, um, and you know those those aren't a hundred percent defined yet. But um, my hope is that 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 the, the program will allow that. Yeah, and then so we, but now you're talking about the the preparation session too. And again, the law says a preparation session must be uh, attended and offered. Yeah. And and again, not everyone's going to know. I mean, there's kind of a discernment process that some people will go through. Like, not everybody will know from day one that they definitely want to do psilocybin. And there, there, it's it's appropriate for people to have some ability to engage in a in a lengthy dialogue uh, with with somebody who's knowledgeable to determine whether that's the right. Um, kind of a, a fit for them, um, you know, and if they find that there's some uh, risk factors that are present, like maybe they want to take time to explore and, you know, and all of that. And, and I think that the, the concern that this will always result in, um, you know, unauthorized practice of, of mental health care is um, it's a little bit overstated. Um, it's definitely a concern. And I, but I think that, uh, kind of a, a, a nuanced uh, a rule set could could really prevent that. This is making me think there might be a lot of fodder there for you guys to argue about First Amendment principles and the ability of free speech amongst non-mental health professionals just merely to have conversation with the, the clients of the center. It's, it's the same analogy that allows doctors to write recommendations for cannabis, you know, here here in my home state of Arizona, we have a medical program, much like a lot of other states. And to qualify, you've got to go get seen by a physician, but they can't script this stuff. It's still a Schedule One substance, so there's no prescription marijuana, nothing. So how do you get it? You get a doctor's recommendation, uh, and that's protected free speech under First Amendment. So I have to think you've got probably some ability there. That's a really interesting point. I hadn't considered that. Yeah. And, that, that, sir, is why I get paid know, the medium bucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the medium, yeah, the, the mid-grade billable. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, so, so, that, that's, so that's been one of the big kind of issues that I've, I've had with, uh, with the discussions that have been going on thus far. Um, another one is um, there's talk about what the appropriate ratio of uh, so, so they've they've tentatively approved that group facilitation will be allowed. Group sessions will be allowed. Um, and oh, good. the question is, I, what's I, the? I was hoping they would uh, permit that because I thought just for pure economics, you need to be able to do that as a psilocybin center. If everything was one on one, oh my god, how expensive it would be. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, and one of the. One of the other things is, you know, Measure 109 itself, and it's it says that, the, you know, the, the reasons for the bill or the policies underlying the measure uh, are to improve. And one of them is to improve, like, the social health of, of people. And, you know, I can definitely see um, there's a certain type of uh, bonding that that happens um, while in an altered state that, that can be very 
um, therapeutic, a social kind of cohesion that can occur. Um, so, you know, those, there's, there's a lot of reasons why it makes good sense. And, and luckily, so far, it seems that most people are in agreement that um, group sessions should be permitted. But the question is, how, how stacked with facilitators does it need to be uh, for the number of, of um, ah, okay, you know, because so you wouldn't so, want like one guy to a group of two hundred. That might be exactly much. okay, but but you probably want more than or fewer than one to to one. You know, yeah, um, for sure. So to know exactly where that line should be drawn is um, is is hard to know for sure. Um, my view on this is that um, you know there there. The risk here is that something bad is going to happen and there's not going to be enough people to intervene and um, kind of mitigate potential harms. Um, and that's a real risk that that does need to be taken very uh, seriously, obviously. Um, but the, the risk on the other side is that you have too many facilitators that are necessary that you drive the cost up and it's cost prohibitive and th therefore yeah. inequitable. Um, so to, it, there is kind of a, a delicate balance there that um, needs to be struck. And so far, uh, the, the licensing subcommittee has uh, decided to make the recommendation to the larger board that that ratio should be three to one, that there should be uh, no fewer facilitators than uh, one facilitator per every three clients. And inherently I don't hate that, but the, the thing that I think that that's missing is that there is a, a really dose dependent, um, you know, if, if people are on a half a gram, three to one probably isn't, isn't going to be necessary. Yeah, no, uh, half, half a gram, you're pretty much baseline the whole time. Yeah. If they're on like the Terrence McKenna, five gram heroic oh, dose, different, different uh, experience <laughs> for sure. They might want more than three to one. Um, yeah. And there should be some, a, a more kind of dynamic rubric or matrix that they use to, to decide, you know, what's the, the minimum, because not everybody's going to want to do uh, two, or three or four grams, you know, some people may only want just a, a, a minor amount, just to have to just to see what it's like before they even up their dose. Okay. So you're, 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 have, you're recommending like a graduated dosing schedule that as you step up in that dosing schedule, conditions around you change. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think that that, that makes sense. I think it's more equitable that way um, in terms of just not being cost prohibitive. And, yeah. um, and I don't think the risk factor is, is especially high um, to, to do that. And I know maps model right now for MDMA is like two facilitators to one, uh, patient. So even in some, I, I, I understand the argument that one uh, facilitator to three uh, clients is in some ways like a, a, a very much more uh, liberalized version. But if people are only on uh, like a like a small dose, I, I just feel like it feels like overkill and, and um, more expensive than it needs to be. Yeah, uh, that makes perfectly good sense to my ears as well. I completely agree. Um Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, that, that can get quite expensive. I, I wonder if uh, the sliding scale also comes with sliding prices resultingly. That that might be unavoidable. And it's weird because you're only introducing the most incremental amount more of dose, but 
it's such a different experience for people. And and you're talking specifically well, I think though, it's a practical where people are simultaneously dosing. That's the only time that this issue comes up. If it's the intake or the integration session, the different conversation, right? Yeah, like I, I assume that in most cases, it'll be you bring a number of your friends or family members or whoever, your partners, um, and, uh, you know, you, you, you arrange it in advance as a group. But there might be you're doing it kind of blind with people you don't know. Um, I don't think that'll be nearly as common, but it, yeah. it, so far that's not prohibited. Um, but the other thing is, like, if, if, if all you have is this kind of rigid three to one the different the cost difference between doing a half a gram uh, and the cost of doing three and a half grams is going to be relatively negligible because yeah. the only cost difference is really going to be um, two and a half the, grams the <laughs> itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that could encourage people to um, take more than they really. You know, if they're going to have to shell out ninety percent of the cost and, and pay yeah. thousands of dollars or whatever it ends up being. Yeah. Uh, well, to, to do that in for a penny in for know, a pound absolutely that's that's an effect <laughs> sure we're kind or, of or here it's in for a penny and for a gram i guess i should dosage. say <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah we're, we're just going to be incentivizing people taking higher doses and i don't think that that should be uh i don't think that should happen um and that's one way to to avoid that yeah and, and i remember um, seeing in the draft regs you sent over there was some description that there is a necessity for a private room for each client. Uh, it's got to be of a certain minimum dimension. It sounded to me like it was a smallish, really private room. So even then your facilitator isn't necessarily in the same room with you the whole time anyway, right? Yeah, I think it was 80 square foot was the yeah. uh, minimum uh, room size. And uh, it's not clear to me whether um, if, if a person does it, I think they have to offer a private room. And so if, yeah. if somebody's having kind of a, a difficult experience, then I think, you know, they have that option of kind of retreating to a quieter space and, and you know, um, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, that, uh, you know, I think in some ways it, it might actually make sense to have a minimum of two facilitators for a group of three, but if you're having six people, um, maybe you don't need, you know, three facilitators. Um, yeah. So anyway, uh, I think um, that's kind of, uh, you know, I think it's, it's a little bit overkill and I, and I think it's, um, you know, going to be, I, I, like I said, incentivize people for taking more than maybe some people would otherwise take, which yeah. I don't, I, 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 which makes me a little nervous to be perfectly honest. It's, um, it's the McDonald's supersize syndrome. Hmm. You know, yeah. did, did you ever see uh, supersize me? I did. Yeah. I mean, that, that was the whole premise of the film and it, and that film changed McDonald's policy as a result. So, I mean, not that people are going to come to a psilocybin center expecting an identical experience, but yeah, you're right. There's a certain encouragement to go for the higher dose. It's only 10 cents more. Most people are going to yeah, say yes to I, that. They're going to, you know, shop value consciously, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's, um, that's kind of another of the big, um, kind of issues that I've, I've had, um, <laughs> 
um, which which also kind of segues into a revisit of a, a part of the conversation we had last interview, which was um, about microdosing. Yeah. Uh, you asked whether Measure 109 provides for microdosing, and I uh, said basically no. Um, and I could see there being actually under 109 kind of a microdosing cafe type of thing. Uh, so a, a facilitator isn't allowed to let you leave the facility until you've reached a certain point where you're, you no longer appear to be, um, you know, under the influence that you've, sure. you've reached kind of a, a base level of, 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 you know, consensus reality, I think they call it. Yeah. Well, for sure. Um, Letting somebody drive off while they're still under the influence. I mean, what a liability nightmare. Oh my God. Yeah. I, I would think no facilitator would let you leave until they were beyond convinced you were sober. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so if, if a person takes what's truly a microdose, which is like a sub perceptual, like you're not yeah. tripping, right. You're yeah. like, you're, you're not even really aware you've had anything it's just the slightest little minor enhancement where unless you're thinking about it you're, you're probably not even aware that you've microdosed yeah. um in theory under the program those individuals if if they came to a facility and they took an eighth of a gram or a sixteenth of a gram or something like that in theory there wouldn't like they they're never going to reach that height you know maybe they could be released right away yeah. conceivably um, i don't think that the health authority is going to do this but i'm i would love it if they would and that would kind of create these service centers that are uh, social cafes where people show up and they maybe they have their coffee and, and maybe I, they get a little microdose i was and, about to say this is such a great opportunity for a drive-through coffee stand uh i i but i i also share the uh cringe at the thought of oregon saying yes to that right away Yeah, like the uh, we're gonna put a little a little splash of extract in your coffee and <laughs> something. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, but and, but you're right. The, see, uh, the microdose is non-perceptible. Yeah. It, it would be like stopping somebody from leaving church after mass on Sunday because they partook in Eucharist. You know that tiny little sip of wine ain't gonna register, folks. It's okay to drive home after church. So it's the same thing for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if they did that, it would be, uh, you know, maybe maybe there's a minimum period where they want to wait and make sure that when you get to what most people is their peak experience, which is, you know, between, I think, 40 and 60 minutes. Um, maybe you have to wait that long after you take it before you're released to go. But maybe you're released. To, so you just hang out at this cafe for an hour. Yeah. Uh, you know, talk to people, maybe, you know, your little corner, like Portland would have a bunch of them. If these are allowed, I'm sure. But your little corner microdose cafe where you just you bump into your, your friends there, your neighbors, and, you know, uh, just shoot the breeze. And then after an hour of just kind of kicking it, you go about your business. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like a great little social place to kick back and relax. We're still having bad lag on your internet there, John. You're, yeah. Um, you're, so do you want to, do you want to want reboot? Should I pause? Yeah, and, and, okay. I'll just leave everything recording. Yeah, Go ahead, log off, it. log back in and let's see if that improves things. I'm terribly sorry. 
All right. And while we're uh, waiting for John to log back in, I'm just going to keep talking. Maybe I can <laughs> salvage this without having to edit, which would be great because I, as you may know as my viewership, uh, I do all the editing and it, it probably shows. So sorry about that too. Uh, anyway, uh, just to extend some of the thoughts, uh, as John is saying, he's working on trying to help get this Oregon program standing up, and they're having to wrestle with a variety of different rules and stuff you wouldn't even dream to think about. Uh, you now have to think about is the minutiae, how many people in a room, how big the room should be. It's really, it goes to that level. And in, in Arizona, in, in the cannabis practice I do, uh, we've seen all of that with the dispensaries and the recreational facilities having all sorts of regulations that get down to this little detail. So yeah, I'm not at all surprised that John is, is talking about this. And relative to the economics that John is describing about how it costs so much more to have highly credentialed people on staff versus less credentialed people on staff, that's a big dose of reality. And that's true in, in most of the different experiences you have in, in a medical context versus a non-medical context. And here, yeah, if you have to have a, a staff physician, a staff therapist, uh, licensed nurses, etc., these are people who are high earners and they can go earn really good paychecks literally anywhere else. So if you want to attract them to come work at these facilities, you're either going to have to pay them commensurate to what they're able to get in other marketplaces, or you've got to find some really special people who are just frankly willing to take a huge pay cut for a social cause. And, you know, that sounds great, but asking anybody to take a monstrous pay cut for a social cause, yeah, that doesn't really happen too much in practice. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but in this instance, with all the liability risk, because again, we're still talking about a Schedule One substance, which means there's still risk of federal prosecution for these people, plus all the downstream effects that happen from being a participant in these businesses, which can include not being able to do any sort of traditional banking if you're earning your money off of a business that is engaged in Schedule One, as for example, cannabis people do, they have a devil of a time just getting traditional banking services being able to get mortgages. These are the kinds of sacrifices these people are going to be making joining this psilocybin industry. So they are heroes and pioneers, and I think, frankly, they should be paid fair and commensurate to what service they're providing. But yeah, at the consumer end of this, there's a price that gets tied to every visit or every experience at a psilocybin center. And that price tag is going to be directly driven by, uh, in part, what it costs to run that center. And yeah, if you have to have a bunch of uh, multi-hundred-thousand-dollar salaried people on staff versus a bunch of people on five-figure salaries, that translates directly to difference in product pricing and, in turn, consumer affordability. And if the goal is to try to make this affordable to literally everybody, you want to do whatever you can to drive that price as far down as possible and not have this be a, a luxury opportunity only for the wealthy and privileged. That's fundamentally unfair for a program that's been painted as and is intended to be a public health benefit. So I, I'm all in favor of anything that comes in these regulations that gets pricing down. And, and that is ultimately a goal, isn't it? So where did we leave off before we had that terrible internet hiccup? We were talking about pricing and getting pricing down and, and uh, salaries. So yeah. Another thing they can do to keep pricing low is um, insurance. Uh, I've commented to the board a couple of times about insurance. Uh, Measure 109 allows the health authority to require uh, that facilities uh, be insured. 
This is a brand new type of service that exists uh, nowhere in the United States. And to my knowledge, there's not general liability uh, insurance that covers a psychedelic retreat center. And the question is how um, scared are uh, actuaries <laughs> going to be uh, for... Uh, oh. to, to, let, let me tell you, next week, I have a good friend coming on for an interview. She's an insurance broker. This is all we're going to be talking about is the nightmare of insuring psychedelic businesses. So, really? Yep, yep, yep. So your, your, your timing, sir, is magnifique. So do tune in next week. For sure, yeah. Um, did, I, I'd be curious. If, I know you'll, you'll probably know more next week, but do you have a sense for how... Um, <laughs> how expensive uh it is um more the- more than you're willing to pay <laughs> seriously seriously it's 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 as you point out there's no actuarial data on this so uh insurance companies are dutifully and and rightly freaked out uh they would love to grab the premiums but on the same token we all know insurance companies are in business to collect premiums not pay claims and they're always looking at the, the downside risk and wondering, are we going to pay a claim? And how big is that claim going to be? So when they are writing policies, like, for example, the cannabis industry, there is now a very vigorous insurance industry around the cannabis industry, even though it's still federally illicit. Um, they warm up to it. And what they'll do is place a lot of limiters in the policy and a lot of exculpatory language and exclusion terms. So yeah, you're buying an insurance policy, but it's way less insurance than you think you're getting and probably way less insurance than you need. But yeah, it's, it's terribly expensive right now because nobody knows. Mm. I guess um, I heard anecdotally, uh, I think from somebody at one of these board meetings say that when the cannabis industry first opened up, the only insurance company I think in the world that would insure it uh, was Lloyd's of London. <laughs> and I guess it was just... I, I don't know if that's true, but I wouldn't be shocked. Uh, Lloyd's famously will insure damn near anything, um, but they really put some brain power behind the agreement and behind the premium. And yeah, you're going to pay, uh, well, sorry to use a pun here, but premium prices for that premium. Absolutely. Uh, So, you know, could you get insurance for this business? I'm sure you can, uh, but would you want to pay what what the company will charge you for the coverage that you're going to receive? So that's going to be an enduring problem. And and that begs the question, John, what happens in the circumstance that these regulations require insurance and nobody can get it? Well, the thing I'm hoping to see is, you know, as you probably know, Oregon has one of the most robust um, kind of healthcare, government-ran healthcare programs or, or insurance programs in the country. Our Medicaid program is um, excellent. Oregon Health Plan um, covers; uh, it, it's progressive, and it, 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 you know, we actually cover uh, all children, including children who. Oh uh, no, no, I, I don't mean from the patient perspective of getting coverage by a carrier for their healthcare services. No, no, I'm talking liability insurance for the center. You know, imagine the circumstance, somebody leaves and they weren't checked properly. And yeah, they were still a little under the influence and got into a horrendous car accident. Oh my God. That's a bad moment. Really bad moment. And in that case, insurance 
and that protects both the, the the client and the facility. You know, um, it, it's it just makes sense that it's there. Um, and if what I'm hoping to see is that the state of Oregon will offer kind of a like a a public option uh, to, or, or maybe it's even a mandated thing where uh, facilities are required to have state offered insurance that uh, has a more realistic assessment of the risk and it's not driven by profit motive. And 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 because Oregon's going to be, um, you know, on the ground and not overly uh, fearful of this because they're, they're I mean, we're, we're forced to deal with it in Oregon <laughs> yeah, or we get to deal with it. Um, you know, the, I think they'll just have a much more realistic assessment of, of the potential risks um, to, to, to make those prices not just grossly inflated. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I just, I, I worry about the uh, ability for any of these facilities to open their doors if they, if they literally cannot get insurance. Because I, I suspect most investors wouldn't want to put their money at risk and most operators wouldn't want to either. Yeah, I mean that's it's going to be, you know, dispositive for I think a lot of people. Um, yeah. So yeah. if you have any influence, <laughs> I would recommend that you press that the regulations not mandate insurance. I mean, ideally it would be great to have it, and I'd love for it to be mandated because I think these places should be insured. But if you've got no insurance market mm-hmm. and you've got a requirement, you're screwed. You can't do it. Yeah. And if you think about a facility that might offer services to say 20 people, um, you know, like, and they're thinking each one of them has a high likelihood of doing something totally harmful to themselves or to others, you know, <laughs> um, that's just, you know, it's just not realistic. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that they, uh, you know, we're getting close. Uh, we're, we're about a year and three months out year and, three months out now before the program has to have all its rules done. And mm. there's been, there's been a little talk about the insurance piece, but not, not very much. And that also makes me a little nervous because yeah. it is kind of yeah. a, a big part of this that um, could, could make it again, inaccessible to a lot of people. Yeah, for, for sure. And pricing being top of that list. Um, you know, on the other side of the liability uh, issue is, of course, the ability to exculpate some liability with the implementation of, of some sort of a, a, a client or customer waiver. Is the rules committee or any of the board people, is that coming up at all in conversation in the sense that they're encouraging or discouraging the use of liability waivers? Well, I think that they're going to exist. And I think... Um, I haven't heard whether they are um, prohibiting them or requiring them um, with the screening uh, documents that exist. I mean, they have done an informed consent document and a a client bill of rights, a document that, you know, look pretty good, I think, for the most part. Um, And and there's not been talk about that, like a waiver as any part of that, but that would be... um, you know, I, I'm sure if it's not prohibited, every service center is going to do it, you know. Yeah. And, and that's I, binding. I looked at that draft uh, informed consent form. It's pretty thorough. It's like, what, three or four pages? There's like 19 distinct paragraphs on it. It's pretty hefty. And and the draft I have, uh, like literally each paragraph has to be initialed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I think that's really good. I mean, you want to give uh, clients full... Uh, full warning of the of the thing wrong and, and reasons why they may not want to do it. You know, we're not trying to blindside anybody and 
and, and, and leave somebody to, to make decisions that aren't, that aren't fully informed. So yeah. <laughs> um, it is kind of thorough and it does mean that the, the kind of intake process and the screening process are going to take longer. And it's another reason to allow multiple uh, prep sessions because uh, you know, what kind of attention span is somebody going to have after going through pages and pages of this kind of stuff? Yeah. Uh, you want to make sure they really comprehend it all. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, and to that point, is there any discussion uh, of having rules allowing the prep session to use pre-recorded videos or, or the equivalent? Because I could readily see, you know, some poor uh, worker at, at the facility the 10th time they give the spiel, it's going to become so boring. <laughs> so just having a video that people can just watch over and over again makes perfectly good sense to me and also spares a lot of labor time and thus payroll expense. So is, is that going to be something that would be under consideration? They haven't talked about that uh, so far as I'm aware, uh, but it, but I agree with you 100%, Carrie. I think that makes great sense and especially with the fatigue of just being like the, the, you know, the flight attendant that just does the same thing, you know, even they pre-record that now uh, for good reason. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. You know, let that be the initial orientation session and then maybe make like the next orientation session optional with a live human being. Yeah, no, I think that makes good sense. And then they can kind of ask questions and they can really, to the extent that there is discernment that, should needs to be done by the client, you know, they can really weigh that and it can be kind of a individual discussion instead of just the general, you know, the ton of stuff that they're going to have to sign off on. Maybe it's not a ton, but you know, the the consent form, the bill of rights, um, you know, those screening documents and things like that. For sure. For sure. All right. What else, what else is happening in these draft rules? This is, this is great stuff, by the way. I really appreciate you sharing this. This is completely great brain food for me. I I love this. Well, it's, it's really exciting, you know, and you know that Oregon's model is going to be adopted by a lot of states that follow, maybe not exactly, but it's going to be kind of the template. And you already see that in other states um, that have kind of kicked around bills or or initiatives. Um, And, you know, like to the extent that we can make sure that Oregon's program isn't unnecessarily restrictive, is is appropriately safe, um, you know, it, and also gives people full access that's that's affordable to kind of these spiritual and healing modalities that aren't currently legal uh, within the United States um, outside of religious context which we'll get to that later, Mm. Um, you know, but, you know, it's just important that we not, I mean, we don't want to make it too liberal because if we screw it up, we'll screw it up for everybody. And um, other states will look and and bristle at um, (laughs) at, at the results. For sure. Yeah. Oregon absolutely is going to set the tone for the nation. Uh, but but I will say, you know, in fairness, I expect Oregon to screw up some of it. It would be shocking if Oregon didn't. This is brand new, created from whole cloth. Nobody's done this before. How can anybody necessarily know all the details? You're going to have to experiment a little bit. So that makes me think, if, if you know, does the uh, statutory scheme provide that your agency has the right to unilaterally make the rules of this program, or do they have to go through some sort of a public uh, vetting and commentary process for all of it? 
Yeah, so um, the regulations that will be adopted are subject to Oregon's Administrative Procedures Act. So they will be going through public comment and, um, you know, maybe potentially even a couple of rounds of public comment, depending on how much revision there is um, after the first. Um, But yeah, it's it's absolutely subject to that. And all right. So it sounds yeah. like you're you're similar uh, here in Arizona. We also have an Administrative Procedures Act. I'm pretty sure there's a uniform act that like every state has. And there's three layers of rulemaking. There's emergency, which this is not. There's general rulemaking, which exactly this has to be put up for public comment. There's waiting periods, blah blah blah. But then there's exempt rulemaking, which um, if the statute authorizes, the agency can just straight up make rules. They don't have to ask. They don't have to show. They can just do. And uh, we've got a um, social equity program right now switching on for our cannabis uh, program and that whole program is exempt so our department of health services has been trying to be kind of a little nice by posting stuff but they're being like zippy fast not advertising and uh nobody knows what's going on right now it's it's a frustration is that because equity is unpopular in arizona oh god <laughs> don't, don't make me go there <laughs> no there there are myriad myriad flaws with our social equity program starting with the very statute that creates it it's a it was our proposition 207 which is our recreational marijuana law just passed in the general election 17 pages of statutes in it i kid you not john one sentence creates the social equity program one goddamn sentence in 17 pages. It doesn't define anything. And as a result, our Department of Health Services, God bless them, took the lazy path. And as a result, eh, the rules kind of suck. So we're waiting. Uh, December, they're supposed to be taking applications. And we'll see how it goes. What sucks about them is it that they're too... Um not they don't go far enough or they go too far uh, in establishing there's really almost no protection for social equity Uh, if there is such a thing as too far and i'm I'm not suggesting that there necessarily is well uh, here's the problem the statute you've got to remember the agency is completely dependent on the statute in order to establish its rules it can never go beyond that statute and the statute doesn't even define what the hell social equity is so people out in the public have an idea of what they think it is but there's literally no definition, and we have nothing in our law that, that would even begin to tip you in a direction. So as a result, you know, DHS did their best with a really poorly drafted statute. And it's totally not the agency's fault. I'm terribly sympathetic to them. But, you know, nobody down there had the will to really try to grab it and make it into something special. Instead, they just kept it really basic. So, for example, the application process for this, no merit, nothing. There's going to be no beauty contest in it. It's just going to be name, address, phone number, thank you. Oh, we have too many applications. Guess what? We're going to kick it over to the lottery, and you're going to get a little plastic ping pong ball with your number on it. And if your number's picked, congratulations, you're a winner, social equity. It's stupid. It's completely stupid. But it is what it is, and that's what we got to deal with. Hmm. And they're not even like a weighed based on merit or... or nothing. No merit, nothing, John. A social hmm. equity program with zero merit in it. It's embarrassing, frankly. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But it's what we got. And I, I at least I can say I didn't draft it. So I'm not responsible. Yeah. Wow. I, I, it's that, that like golf. Sound... I play the ball where I found it. <laughs> yeah. Um, you put 
like all marginalized people just marginalized lottery just whoever wins and oh, everyone else well yeah yeah well it, uh, i'll give you one one thing worse the <laughs> yeah. way the program rules are are drafted currently to be on the application you have to be a, a qualified applicant meaning you have to have uh over the last 3 out of 5 years less than 400% of the US poverty guideline income for your household so if you're a single person, that means you were earning less than $50,000 a year. You have to have some connection to a criminal something connected with either directly cannabis or other crimes that is expungeable. And then you have to live in what has yet to be defined as an affected community, which we all think is going to be a list of zip codes. So I don't mean this in a snarky fashion, but what the department has decided is to be a qualified applicant for a social equity license. You basically have to be a poor criminal who lives in a shitty zip code. Now, if that isn't the recipe for failure in these businesses, I don't know what is. Were we talking at one point, Gary, about... Um there's these kind of strange partnerships. It's somebody who gets one of these equity licenses mm -hmm. in Arizona can, there's nothing that stops either partnering or even transferring. The correct. License. Correct. So DHS has tried to plug the holes a little bit by restricting who can be on the application, but there's still a massive path around that through the employment of management contracts, which is how the entire industry works. You've got the licensed entity, but they almost never operate their own businesses. In turn, they contract with management companies who have the resources, the skills, the money, et cetera. So, you know, I'm not knocking that. It's very helpful if you want to get your doors open and you want to get your business operating. And because of the way the social equity program is designed here in Arizona, it is inescapable. There's no way a true social equity applicant could actually do any of this without outside assistance. Yeah, I mean, if they're only at fifty thousand dollars, and and there's not even any kind of like race or or you know demographic component to it, or is there in in Arizona? Uh, Arizona addressing race issues? <laughs> You're kidding, right? You do know that almost cost us a Super Bowl a few years back. Um, yeah, no, no, they weren't going to go near yeah. that with a with uh, with a twenty foot pole. No, it's it's in Arizona. The whole race card is, is a. It's the third rail at best, and it's a topic nobody, well, most nobody is willing to address at the legislature at worst. Um, we have this weird transitioning population here in the state where we really went purple during the last election. You know, we're known for being a very sort of Republican conservative stronghold. Uh, I'm not one of those people, of course. But, uh, yeah, our last election, we voted decidedly Democrat on, on across a number of different uh, platforms. So, yeah, we're in this weird transition, but the people who still hold the seats in our legislature, for the most part, still very dyed-in-the-wool Republican. Mm. And and very, very conservative wing of the Republican Party, for that matter. And I imagine that your kind of governing authority that's drafting those rules is probably also reflective of that, uh, that population as well, which yeah. is another great reason uh, why I, I love living in Oregon, cause, because um, you know, we have different problems. But Well, let me ask you this. Is your, is your agency enthusiastic about your program? Yeah. So, uh, um, because we that, don't have that experience here, even with our cannabis program, our, you know, the statutes that we have were created by public initiative. They didn't come from our legislature, God forbid. Uh, so the way they were drafted, the department of health services here was, you know, handed the cannabis program. And 
nobody down there wanted it. They they took their public health role much more seriously, and they just viewed this as a weed program that really didn't have anything to do with cancer or diabetes or you know other issues like pandemic. So as a result, the enthusiasm for the program inside the agency has been tepid, lackluster. I mean, they're not not doing their job. I don't want to give a misimpression here. They are clearly doing their jobs. But, you know, they could do more. They could do better. They just choose not to. Oh, uh, I've got a, am I unstable? My, my connection unstable? Uh, there was a little video lag, but you seem to be okay now. I think this is going to keep recurring. Um, if you want to try switching your video off and let's see if the audio signal gets stabilized, I can just put your photo up. Yeah, actually, you know what? If you, if you do switch your video off, I think you've got your photo as your uh, static. Um, yeah, there you go. Okay, keep, keep talking. Let's see if the audio improves, John. All right. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know if I would say necessarily that the folks in the state who are doing this are excited, but I do th- know that they take their jobs very seriously and they are invested in in this program being well-designed and, and well-ran. Um, and, you know, I think they're, they're taking their time to be thoughtful about a great many things and, um, you know, I don't think that they're just like they had it foisted upon them. Uh, they've started hiring people. And I think right now they have, I want to say three employees, but they're going to vamp that up. And, um, you know, that's, uh, you know, I think that makes a, it makes a big difference, obviously. Yeah. Uh, are there any uh, rules or regulations prohibiting folks who are with your agency or consulting with your agency from being participants in any of the businesses that might come about? No, there's not. And there has been actually um, significant, uh, as far as I can tell, there's been some some drama actually about some folks uh, involvement with with private enterprise and, and, and some accusations that they may be using their a position on the board to, you know, advance their own uh, economic interests and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, and people have a duty to disclose conflicts, but beyond that, you know, that it, it's not, I mean, they, in, in generally, they, you, in this kind of process, they, they probably actually do want experts uh, involved with rulemaking because they will, you know, know, like the the relevant considerations, but but of course the risk is that they they muddy their recommendations based on self interest, um, and uh, you know so it, it's there are people who are who are who have kind of a, a foot in both worlds, and it's it's again hard to know uh, how much of that is may influence the the program, but you know I do think that's part of the my earlier comment that. Everyone on the board uh, has, you know, advanced degrees and they're all professional types. And, you know, I don't even necessarily assume that it's always like a conscious, you know, effort that they're doing. But those biases, you know, necessarily inform their perspective on things. And, sure. um, you know, that, it, you know, with a, in a way that, that kind of favors a more expensive program, really. Yeah. And, and the reality is, you know, there's no territory to stake right now you're still creating it so that makes sense 
Interesting. So what else? What else, what else is happening with the new rules? Uh, by the way, um, the audio has really stabilized nicely. I, I think switching your video off helped tremendously. So, oh, great. So thanks for doing that. Well, one of the really interesting things is uh, you, you probably heard of um, uh, the Poplar Project there at Harvard. It's a project on psychedelics, law, and regulation. Yeah, that was announced roughly a month, month and a half ago, I believe. Yeah, so um, for people who aren't deep in this, uh, Mason Marks is on the advisory psilocybin advisory board. Uh, he, in my understanding, is a... Uh, both a law professor, uh, a lawyer, and also a medical doctor. And so he approached Harvard and founded this this uh, project, uh, which I think is going to be uh, one of the main vanguards against kind of industry co-opting regulation. Um, and, and I'm really grateful for this. And, and I think by there being kind of a Harvard uh, a heart you know, level like Harvard Law project dedicated to making good policy uh, recommendations and good policy advice, um, you know, outside of, of that kind of financial uh, interest, hmm. uh, hopefully, um, that, you know, it, it'll be relied upon heavily by uh, states and, and governments uh, that, are, that are considering their own kind of law. I think with that, I know there's, this is probably a really tall claim, but I think Mason probably just became uh, one of the most influential people in all of psychedelics being kind of head of that project and also on the Oregon board. Uh, and he, he got uh, basically uh, the, the, the Poplar project is now going to be working with the Oregon uh, uh, Psilocybin Advisory Board to to kind of further uh, the analysis and, and the research that's that's there to to, to inform those policies. So, yeah. well, thank um, God he dethroned Joe Rogan. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah, well, it makes sense that they'd want to plug into the very first program in the country. My God, you are the absolute bellwether. Yeah. So with, you know, it's, it's, it'll be interesting to see how, uh, you know, Poplar and, and the advisory board kind of uh, intersect and, and what, what that looks like, but, you know, the Poplar is, is funded by, I think it's called the Sese foundation. It was funded by Tim Ferriss and this guy named Matt Mulwig, uh, who's best known for creating WordPress, but he's um, you know, like they, I know Tim has, has vowed at least at one point, I don't, I don't follow Tim as closely as I probably should, but I know he had vowed at one point to never have any uh, financial interest in any psychedelic industry for fear that uh, all of his recommendations would be uh, seen as, as self-interested. And it was important for him to advocate uh, in his position to get he thought psychedelics were too important hmm. to, to risk his uh, the integrity of his recommendations to be seen as, as self-interested. So he he vowed, even though there's a ton of money to be made in, in psychedelics for for the for the right people, he said he's just not going to do it. So yeah, you know, I I, 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 res I respect that. I, I, I will I will share with you. Um, I don't have a penny of my money invested in any of the cannabis stuff. That's been a mainstay of my practice for twelve years now. And, for same reason, yeah, to maintain credibility. Wow, is that that? That's probably a hard decision to make. I mean, if you're able to navigate those uh, those regs and and kind of uh, 
No, it's it's actually easy for a number of reasons. Top of my list, though, being credibility, but secondary to that, the ethical dimension. We, uh, by the way, I'm having uh, uh, in a couple of weeks an ethics lawyer on to talk about the ethics of all of this. Uh, but yeah, there are restrictions on what we as licensed attorneys can do, and our ethics rules, so far as I read them, do not permit the attorneys to be direct participants in these businesses. We're allowed to counsel them, but the way I read our Arizona rules in particular, I don't think I'm allowed direct ownership or direct participation. That being said, I know several lawyers who do and are, but I just choose not to. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think Oregon's adopted uh, that rule for psilocybin yet, but I know they are relatively late to the game, uh, I, I believe. I drafted that, got that uh, rule for you know, lawyers who, who advise in marijuana businesses. It, you you have uh, in Oregon an actual ethics rule on point for this? Uh, you're making me second guess myself, but I believe <laughs> that they, I, I don't we, know, it might have been an opinion or it might have been a yeah, rule. Yeah, okay, because that's what I typically see are ethics opinions. And yeah, Arizona, uh, we do have an ethics opinion directly on point regarding cannabis stuff, which is why I said all the stuff I said earlier. Um, but you read that opinion and it lays out the basics that lawyers are never allowed to counsel clients on committing criminal acts. We can't put our clients up to it and we can't help them engage it. What we can do is counsel them on compliance with state law. And that's how we're able to provide our services. But if there were no correlative state law, we would never be able to even do that much. So yeah, with a hypothetical psilocybin center, say we're opening in Arizona, we'd bang into that same problem and we would necessarily, well, need to go to the state bar or to the state Supreme Court and solicit something from them to permit it or to give us assurance that we can. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've, I've heard that there has been discussion at one of the Oregon ethics committees where the, the issue has already been raised, but you know, I don't, I haven't heard that the rules been kind of, uh, promulgated, promulgated or anything. Yet. Yeah. Well, and understand too, this is not settled anywhere in any of the jurisdictions that I know of. And point the fact last month or the month prior, I believe I read an article that the, the Georgia Supreme Court uh, or state bar, I can't remember which of the two agencies there's, but, but whoever regulates lawyers in Georgia came down in favor that lawyers practicing cannabis law there could be subject to discipline just for doing that. Wow. So there's, there's no safe practice there for any lawyer. Yeah, that's just crazy. Well, it's stupid. It short changes everybody in the state because now you're depriving these businesses of the incredible skill set that is needed for these businesses. It just makes more of a mess and punishes people unnecessarily. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's just kind of... People who uh, resist change uh, look for any way they can to to, <laughs> to fight it. You know, for um, sure, for sure. So sorry, sorry to uh, divert us off that that Warren. Let's go back to the conversation about the Harvard program. So what what else uh, what else is going on with that? Well, it's I, I haven't heard any kind of results from the collaboration between the Harvard project and. Um, you know, the advisory board, but um, I, I'm just, I feel like it's, it, it's great to, to be, you know, involving, you know, 
I, I talked with uh, some somebody who's you know relative, somebody we both know who's you know been in in the as like a professional in the psychedelics world for you know years and years. And when the board uh, was announced, uh, he was shocked that nobody he didn't recognize any of the names on the on the board. And, and he's like, I know pretty much everybody who's in uh, in psychedelics, and you know, so uh, you know to have people who are, uh, you know, dedicated to this. And there are a few people on the advisory board who have, you know, uh, who, who have more than just kind of a, a casual professional interest in, in psychedelics. And there are folks who, who have volunteered for years at the, you know, at, at, for the Zindo project and somebody there is the head of, or a supervisor for the fireside project, which is a really cool, uh, you know, peer support hotline for people you know, to, to nap, to get through, you know, psychedelic um, experiences to either integrate or to be talked down when they're, they're having kind of a hard time. Um, but, uh, you know, so there are people who are, are deeply involved like that, but I think more of them are like, you know, you know, and this isn't meant as a criticism. It's just, there's a certain degree of specialty that, um, that I think that this Harvard project is going to bring, uh, and expertise that will hopefully be really helpful and and just coming up with the you know the best the best rules. So I it's it's just something to watch. I don't I don't have a whole lot yeah. on it right now, but it's it's definitely an interesting kind of collaboration that I think will have um, um really big big implications for for Oregon and, and and all that follow. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Look, nobody can contest. I mean, Harvard brings gravitas, and what do you need right now? Gravitas. So sure. Yeah, it's kind of funny. To, like the Harvard psilocybin project back in the Timothy Leary days was, uh, you know, the, uh, some people uh, blame for being kind of the like Michael Pollan. I think blames uh, in part, at least, that as being the thing that that ruined it for everyone. Uh, and and maybe uh, maybe this will be the chance to <laughs> to redeem that a little bit. Oh, nobody wants to just throw rocks at Andrew Weil for narking on them. <laughs> right. right. And, and um, ironically, he went on to have an absolutely spectacular career. Yeah. 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 It's kind of a, a lot of controversy in those uh, <laughs> early days. Indeed. Well, it was all new. Can't really point fingers and blame anybody. They were, they were discovering it for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that this kind of current renaissance is, is, you know, I just was actually, you know, yesterday was 920 and I was kind of going on a walk and, and reflecting on things. And, uh, you know, 920 being the, the psilocybin equivalent of 420, yeah. like the mushroom holiday. Um, yeah. So, you, you know what? I'm glad you brought that up. Can I ask you, I, I'm aware of 920, but only because I run in these circles like you do. I don't know anybody outside of these circles who knows it. <laughs> Where did it even come from? Do you know the origin of 920? You know, I was just thinking about that last night, um, actually, and I don't. And I wondered. Um, uh, I, I was watching, a, a, you know, Alex Gray and, and Allison Gray have the Cosm podcast. They do their full moon ceremonies, and I kind of thought they'd mention it. And it made me wonder the fact they didn't. Uh, if if there is some kind of colored history, checkered history uh, with with that. that yeah, I, there's got to be something behind it because it can't just be oh well, it sounds like 420, so we're going to adopt it because uh, that would be a very bad story. 
I, I think that might not be far off. Uh, I think that- <laughs> okay, then you and I have a mission. We've got to improve on that. So we've got to find a better date and a better name. Like Mushroom, think- Mushroom Monday. Call it Mushroom Monday. I, they, I think they chose it as like an autumnal, uh, you know, and maybe because that's when, you know, most mushroom species are, okay. are doing the thing. Uh, so there's maybe some kind of, you know, you might be able to go find wild specimens, you know, on 920 or something. I don't, I don't mm. really know. All right. Well, listen, viewers, uh, if you know the answer to this question, if you know the true, true etymology of, of 920, please write in and share it with us, and I'll talk about it on the show, because this is one of those mysteries we need to uncover here on Psychedelic Alex. Nice. <laughs> I mean, probably just Google it at some point. Yeah, right? okay. Well, I was trying to be lazy and let somebody else Google it, but that's fine. I can Google it, too. Show, show off how much you know about this topic. Um, yeah, the <laughs> other the, kind of the big thing that I was uh, wanting to talk to you about, too, is this, uh, what I think is a really interesting intersection between Oregon Measure 109 and the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or RIFRA. Um, uh, wait, 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 wait. You just said intersection between 109 and RIFRA? Yes, sir. Okay. It, this this is fascinating. Hit me. I'm all ears. I'm even going to add is- ears. I'm so interested. I am, <laughs> I am literally, right now, all ears. Well, it, the conversation at the board uh, started officially, um, I think, in late July. They were looking at the rules that govern uh, medical facilities when they're trying to, you know, borrow the, from those to see if they should apply, uh, you know, to what extent they apply to psilocybin facilities. And somebody brought up whether, you know, they, they found a, a rule in, in, in the health facility realm that provided special, uh, you know, relaxed rules for religious healthcare facilities um, and raised the question of whether uh, Oregon should consider whether that's uh, likely to happen and whether they should prepare for uh, that kind of a scenario. Um, it was ironic because on that same day when that conversation had happened, I had talked uh, with the lawyer who represented Jeremy Mack. Uh, Jeremy Mack is the is a, the criminal defendant in the New Hampshire Supreme Court case where uh, he asserted a religious use defense to psilocybin possession hmm. and and prevailed. Yeah, um, I, I did a review on that. That was a great, great Supreme Court decision from New Hampshire, by the way. Yeah, and it was interesting. Like, it didn't turn on RIFRA. It turned on their state constitution, yep. as you know. Uh, but... You know, the question about whether there are people who legitimately claim, uh, you know, to, to take psilocybin uh, religiously, uh, I don't think it's just possible that that there will be people who apply in Oregon. I think it's inevitable. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's a near certainty that somebody will apply uh, for, for licensure as a, as a religious institution under Measure 109. Yeah. And if that happens, the Oregon Health Authority is in kind of an awkward position. They're going through this extensive rulemaking process right now of how psilocybin can be taken and what kinds of safeguards must be in place and all that kind of stuff. Okay. And if, if it's a religious institution that 
that is, you know, using it. The question is, how involved can a state regulator be uh, over a religious practice? Uh, the state regulator cannot be involved over religious practice directly. So, for example, you couldn't have a regulation that dictates literally what the religion consists of or can engage in. Um, give me a little more. What's, what is the specific concern that, that a religious organization would own and operate one of these facilities? So let's say, well, first off, Measure 109 uh, defines entity. It's like entities are, are who applies. Entities and individuals apply yeah. for psilocybin licenses. Okay. And, and entities basically defined to, to include any in type of business or entity <laughs> registered with the Oregon Secretary of State. Okay. Uh, but which obviously but religions church. can have entities. Religions can be entities. Well, not the religion itself, but they can have an entity. You can have an LLC or a corporation. Uh, this is how most religions get their 501c3 status and can take donations. They run it through an entity. So if a church, a psilocybin church, were to apply for licensure under Measure 109, and it would be, uh, you know, the, the state can't discriminate. Correct. And say, we're not going to grant you your license because you're a church. Correct. Has, you, 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 the state would lose that lawsuit 10 times out of 10. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For sure. So, so if... So then it gets into this really interesting and, and kind of it, my mind starts to, to get muddy <laughs> like, uh, about this because it gets, you know, between the intersection between state and federal law, it gets really complicated. But if the state can't regulate it, they, they can't discriminate. So let's say they apply, they get granted, the church applies, they get their license. Now what? Now, all of these rules that Oregon has spent two years drafting, uh, can they enforce those? Uh, and I don't think it's a quality. I, I don't oh, think it's a. Yeah. A, a, why, why? Why? Okay. Like, for example, you got to have a facilitator. You got to have a room of a certain dimension. You can't let somebody yeah. leave until they're sober. Why? Why would those rules go out the window just because a religious organization happens to be operating the center? That's all fine. Yeah. What's, what's the issue? Well, if it's a necessary part of my religion that I grow psilocybin outside, can the Oregon Health Authority say our oh. license only permits you to grow? Uh, okay. Okay. So you're, you're, you're really focusing on some minutia issues here. Okay. So let, let's take that example that, you know, you, you've somehow found a religion that says I must grow mushrooms outdoors. Uh, a, I'm not aware of such a religion, but let's assume there was one. Sure. Hypothetically, um, yeah. You know, what happens in that circumstance is that, obviously now we're talking to somebody's in court having to pitch this to a judge, the court would have to go through a proper RIFRA-type analysis if, if you're in a RIFRA state. Uh, and I think what they would have to do walking through the analysis is look at the question of, first off, does the government even have a compelling interest in the regulation at issue? I would be hard-pressed to say no to that because this is, you know, psilocybin program. So, you know, clearly Oregon's going to have a, a compelling governmental interest in a well-regulated program. So then now what the next level of inquiry turns to is whether or not 
the program is in fact infringing on on a religious practice or liberty that would have First Amendment protection, and then if so, is it is it being accomplished by the least restrictive means? So as long as it's being applied uniformly and and there really isn't a less restrictive means and there really isn't an impairment on religious practice, the regulation should withstand scrutiny. Just because somebody declares, well, you know, I have a religion at issue, doesn't mean they get exemption from everything. Well, and and I I don't mean to suggest that it would be literally everything, but if somebody could, just to take the simple example of, I, my religion requires, you know, this connection to the earth or something like that, that that can only be done outside and it's not compatible with that's that's a better example because like where you grow mushrooming that i I couldn't get my brain around that because i can't fathom it but yeah let's say your religious practices we only conduct our rituals outdoors and your organ theoretical regulation says you can only engage indoors all right that's fair now now you've got a viable court fight over where it takes place but i don't think there'd be an exclusion it just may be that you know either the religion will have to yield and do it indoors or organ will have to yield and allow it to be done outdoors that's a fair fight, though. Well, sure, but what's how does that fight turn out? <laughs> you know, if I, if if my religion sincerely, or somebody's religion, <laughs> can, I give, can I give you the lawyerly answer? Let me guess. It depends. Yeah, you got it. Exactly. That is an actual quote from my brain. We are now psychically linked, John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, honestly, that these are going to be factually driven disputes. No, no question about it. So I, I think the way that I I think this has to sort of, in a certain respect, uh, unravel or, or unfold is, uh, you know, there has to be, if, if, a, if a religious institution is going to apply for licensure in Oregon, they there has to be, like you said, some kind of a RIFRA analysis. And, and I think it, it probably will, should be or will be. Um, a, a whole like separate, probably additional application uh, and quite like basically doing the, the full RIFRA analysis and then going into uh, what exceptions to the general rules are you requesting and why and how, and you know, basically yeah. why are those necessary? Yeah. And maybe, maybe it has to be all outdoors. Maybe, maybe, you know, I mean, essentially any of the rules that govern this program could, it would have to be uh, flexibly applied with a, with a nuanced RIFRA analysis, essentially every time a church, uh, uh, you know, seeks licensure. Yeah, well, well, bear in mind, too, that really what you're describing isn't so much a religious organization owning or operating one of these centers, because that in and of itself is nothing. That just it says something about the owner. It's only where their religious practice now comes into conflict with the regulation. But I could absolutely envision religious organizations just owning these centers and doing whatever the regulations say without necessarily having the religious aspects even come up. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's true too, but maybe, so you think Gary, that if, uh, if a religion said, we don't believe in, I, I can't even think of a, a great example of what that might look like, but we think the three to one client to facilitator ratio is, is oppressive to us because, you know, we, our people, 
don't, you know, our, our spiritual leaders don't need to, to do a nine month training course and pass some tests. Like we're ordained by the higher power or whatever to, uh, to, 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 to lead, to do this work and to lead it. And our, our authority is wholly, we, we reject the, the notion that they have to be, um, you know, you know, licensed and, 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 and furthermore, the, the type of conduct that we are going to do while on psilocybin is, um, is different. We're, we don't think a non-directive facilitator standing around and, and being non-directive is, <laughs> um, that, 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 you know, I guess one of the main, uh, potential issues I could see is if a, if a psilocybin church said, you know, our, our clergy uh, participate in ceremony with the, with the, um, you know, with the religious participants, um, they all take it together. Organ, you know, measure 109 says the facilitator can't take psilocybin during a session. Um, so uh, ah, that, okay. That's a great example, John. There you go. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right, because some psychedelic religions uh, encourage or require the officiant to partake as well or be the one partaking. So it's like, I think there, there I think there kind of has to be uh, almost. I mean, and, and I guess it doesn't have to, but I think the health authority would be would do well to have kind of, a, you know, if they want to regulate it reasonably, they ought to create kind of a, a pathway for people who are, are doing it religiously, who, who take, who, who, who use psilocybin as a necessary part of their religious practice um, to, to really, you know, do the RIFRA analysis because if, if, you know, they, they, so then it's really interesting because I think once you get a, uh, a, a psychedelic religion, uh, and this is where you're you're definitely uh, more acquainted with this area of law than I am. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm 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 thinking on this. If I'm Oregon, I think my pushback is going to be uh, using this example that you know you you want the officiant to partake too. Uh, I think Oregon pushes back and wins on that one, and, and here's why: because the psilocybin program is not meant to be a religious service or a religious observation. There's nothing in the statute that speaks to this. So this would be the religious organization trying to basically shunt in more than the program mandates. So I think Oregon would have a compelling interest that would be considered least restrictive means by saying, hey, we don't want our officiant partaking while tending to our clientele. I, I think a judge could readily see the wisdom in, in that, given that this is not a religious program. The fact that some religious group might want to partake in it doesn't mean they have the right to sort of rescript its DNA. I think the religious group would lose under that circumstance because the religious group is still free to go do what they do, where they choose to do it, and how they choose to do it in other circumstances. This is an organ preventing them because this was never an opportunity for religious observation anyway. It would be the same thing, like, I guess, um, I don't know, taking a religious group to a baseball game and, and insisting that everybody stop and do a prayer. Mm. I mean, you, you could do that if everybody wanted to, but I don't think you could force it. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I think my 
pushback on that would be, I mean, if the state of Oregon can't really claim that, you know, like if, if it's allowing sec, you know, we'll call it secular uh, use of psilocybin, you know, what, compelling interest do they have in, you know, I mean, surely there is some interest, but, you know, can they really claim, I mean, I I think it has to kind of create kind of an opening for, for Mm -hmm. psilocybin churches to, um, to, to, to expand and to, and to, to operate with less state government interference. Yeah. Boy, this, this is a fun one. We could noodle on that. You know what? We could do a show just trying to noodle this one out because I'm seeing what you're seeing and I think there are pathways. Uh, and, I, and I think the starting point is, yeah, I, I don't think there's any way Oregon could prohibit a religious group from applying for and winning and operating one of these centers. I, I don't think that they could prevent that. So starting from that point, you know, could a, a, a psychedelic-based religion who's operating one of these centers make opportunity available for visitors to learn more about their church or, or their services, that might be a, a recruiting tool. Sure, they might be able to do that. But then that begs the question whether there would be an Oregon regulation aimed at preventing that. Which Yeah, it, it's, it's really interesting because you'd, you'd also assume that, um, you know, they're not going to... <laughs> Uh, you know, we, we've had, I think we talked about this uh, at some other point that, you know, there's, there's a fair question of whether, whether you can even require a religion to, for example, apply to the DEA to ask for exemption. I mean, oh, you know, my feelings on that. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I don't think the DEA can compel that. I don't think they can either. And I don't think the state of Oregon could you know, either, but I would think that the state of Oregon would probably want to potentially, and this is where I'm just trying to like spitball and and come up with, with what, you know, what this looks like and how these two things intersect. But, um, you know, the, the state of Oregon might want to provide a pathway to, you know, to give a religious institution some kind of guidance and clearance that, it can practice its religion with certain exceptions and that they're still not going to you know, risk losing their organ license and, and not be apprehended by, you know, st- state law enforcement, um, you know, so they could potentially give a, like yeah. a, you know, like a, not like, not that they can require it. Cause I agree with you, the DEA can't probably require religion to say you must apply to us for an exemption, but if, um, and, and I don't think Oregon could probably require it, but they may want to, to help uh, give guidance uh, to uh, folks to, to try to maintain some kind of control. Cause I think the alternative would be uh, what's already happening is that people are just starting their or, or practicing their religion with no, um, you know, like the DEA would rather have some awareness of, of what what a, a psychedelic religion's doing than not, right? Like they would want to be able to just make sure that they're not diverting, that yeah. they're not 
you know, those sorts of things. Well, yeah, but I think you're going to have that kind of baked into the system already anyway. I mean, if you think about this, we're talking about psilocybin centers in Oregon. The DEA is absolutely going to be all over these, and they're going to want to, at a minimum, make sure that their security protocols are being honored if they even abide and tolerate this, because let's let's be clear, folks at home, nothing about the Oregon program has been approved by the federal government in any measure or step. I mean, literally on day one, if DEA wanted to come in, they could arrest everybody. That's going to be an omnipresent risk. You know, there's no there's no Rohrbacher, Blumenauer uh, spending bill uh, riders. There's there's no coal memos to protect you. And well, there aren't any more anyway. So <laughs> thanks. That's thanks, Jeff story, Sessions. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but, you know, the, you know, you're, you're right. That is in theory possible. Yeah. And my understanding is that um, the, the update I've heard is that uh, people from, I think the health authority itself or somebody involved in a formal capacity with the program have reached out and I'm not even sure what federal agency it was. It might've been DEA um, or might've been Department of Justice and, and asked, you know, what, asked for input on this to start that kind of cooperation. And, and you know, they, they could have come down and said, no way, no how, we're over our dead body. No matter what your voters decide, we would apprehend anybody involved with this. Yeah. But to my, the best of my knowledge, they've been completely silent and they, you know, so just like they kind of had been with the, uh, you know, law, you know, marijuana programs that were lawful under state law um, for, for a long, long time. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All, all I'm suggesting here is, you know, until the law has changed, it hasn't. So anybody participating should not assume silence equals agreement or acquiescence. The, sure. the These agencies sure. can always step in, but I do also agree. It would be the U S department of justice that people ought to be reaching out to because the DEA is just a sub-administration underneath the Department of Justice. DOJ yeah. is their overlord. So, yeah. I think it was the DOJ that, yeah. that they went to. Um, that, that would make perfectly good sense to me. Yeah, but they didn't say no, and they could have. They could have said, over our dead bodies, we absolutely will prosecute everyone who's involved with any way in any way. And, and they, they most certainly did not do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, they may, they may be waiting and watching to see how the program unfolds, but yeah, you know, even if it's respectful and, and clean and operates quietly and doesn't bother people, DEA can still step in any federal agency could. Yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot of people in involved in this, uh, you know, just like in the early days of cannabis, I mean, there are these early risk takers who mm -hmm. are are willing to make those potential sacrifices if if need be uh, to to make the program work to to get people access to these uh, plant fungi medicines. Um, you know, and I, I, you know, that's definitely in theory possible, but I just I don't see it happening, particularly with the you know tidal wave of of support and investor enthusiasm and all kinds of, you know, at every level, it seems like there's, you know, people are, you know, psychedelics are having their day. We're, yeah. we're reaching that point where I think society finally turns on, you know. Um. <laughs> can, I, can I give you a cynical answer to that? Yeah. I, I, I agree with you. I, I, I think the federal government will take a patient wait and watch approach and let this experiment in one of the crucibles we call states take place. 
I think, though, and here's my cynical answer, if there is going to be some sort of a, a crackdown, it's going to be at the behest of one or more pharmaceutical companies wanting to knock out what they perceive as competition, and thus they will go carp to the senators they pay, or they will go carp to DOJ and force it to happen. That's a really interesting... Uh, this is why we are uh, glad that there are people like Mason Marks and Poplar that are <laughs> yeah. uh, trying to avoid this sort of outcome. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and and let me put a message out there to anybody from the pharmaceutical industry who's looking at the psychedelic universe. Don't interrupt this. There is so much room for everybody, and the pharmaceutical products that are being created are going to be wonderful. The research that's going on is great. People who are making investment in all of this hopefully will get good returns on their investments. But there's absolutely room for this regulated Western medical thing and this also separate grassroots thing. They're not in conflict. They complement each other. They help each other. So if you're inclined to rail at the grassroots, please don't. Study it more. Come to understand it better. Don't just try to claim territory and exclusivity because there's room for everybody. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think you wrote an article in Psychedelics Today about sort of that very issue that I thought was really, really good. Oh, thanks. And thank you for reading it. <laughs> you, you, you and my mom, that makes two. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm um, lying. My mom didn't read it. Yeah, well, and it'll be interesting because, you know, there. Are, we were talking earlier, I think, in our last round of talks about, uh, you know, other uh, you know, billion dollar publicly traded companies that are, you know, potentially interfering in Oregon's. Yeah. Uh, I don't have any updates on that, by the way. I, 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 I don't know. Yeah. I, I haven't. Yeah. I haven't there heard. was a, there was a dust up in the news a couple of months back about, I, I won't rehash it cause it wasn't my fight, but yeah, there, there, there seemed to be some barbs being cast in both directions from the, the, the industry in quotes and uh, the grassroots. But, you know, this is not – so this is actually another really interesting thing that's happened over the course of the of the meetings at the board is, you know, when Measure 109 was kind of sold to voters, they the campaign, I think, exclusively used the term psilocybin therapy. Like there wasn't any talk of, you know, that you don't have to have a medical diagnosis, you know, that it's only going to be – uh, you know, you know, high school uh, graduates with a certificate who, who administer psilocybin, you know, th those kinds of things got, you know, glossed over a little bit. Um, but, you know, but those things are all clearly in the bill. Um, yeah. And, you know, the, the question or, or some of the discussions have centered around, well, is this a therapy bill or is this a more, um, you know, supervised adult use kind of law. I keep calling it a bill. It's not a bill, but a measure, um, you know, and it's, you know, it, it's this really interesting thing where the, where the, um, you know, the campaign clearly, you know, promoted it as therapy, but I don't think that that part is totally inconsistent. I mean, as you probably know, in the ketamine space, yeah. you know, there's people who offer ketamine therapy, and there's people who offer ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and some people do active therapy during 
a ketamine treatment. And there are some people who just say, here's some ketamine and they, you know, in a, in a kind of a supervised medical setting or even at home through telemedicine, like some companies yeah. are doing um, with the lozenges and stuff. But by, by, by the way, I, I just last week interviewed uh, Mary Brown from Ames Institute and we were talking about ketamine therapy. So I'll be posting that hopefully uh, later this week. Oh, great. So, yeah, right. once again, you are exactly on topic. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, it just shows how relevant your show is. Uh, how uh, great folks you have on there. Uh, present company excluded, of course. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mean you mean me? I am a little fungible to my own show. That is true. Uh, but I'm <laughs> so fungible, Gary. <laughs> Um, yeah. So anyway, so like the, the issue about whether it's ketamine assisted psychotherapy versus ketamine therapy uh, is, is relevant. You know, it wasn't branded as uh, psilocybin assisted psychotherapy. It was just psilocybin therapy. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think whether, you know, I mean, and there were medical professionals who got up and spoke about it, hospital, uh, sorry, hospice doctors. And, yeah. Who, who you know talked about it in sort of medical terms, but there was other folks who just talked about healing and and you know trauma and you know sort of trauma from war and other other types of things that um, you know led them to to seek psilocybin and to and to get you know substantial healing benefit from it. Yeah, and therapy, as far as I know, is a word subject to very broad definition. Yeah, you know, exactly. I, I'm pretty confident that I've got a bottle of shampoo in my shower that has the words aromatherapy on it. <laughs> that, that's therapy. Says it right on the bottle. Yeah. Um, so it's like, I don't know what, you know, how that how that plays out. But I think there's been kind of a, 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 a I think it took a while for the members of the board to kind of wrap their heads around some some of them, not all of them. Um and in fact, I'm still not sure that everyone's in total agreement yet that that it is kind of a more of a supervised adult use than it is, you know, psychotherapy, um, kind of a yeah. or a psychotherapy adjunct even. Um, but, you know, given the parameters of the bill itself where, you know, one session before, one after, you know, yeah. with a high school graduate with a license, like it's just um, it's hard to. You know, to, to, to expect that that's going to be like a, a highly medical. But all of that is kind of a long tangent to your point about the intersection of, uh, you know, major companies that may uh, exert, you know, influence on, uh, you know, the folks in power uh, to, to really crack down on, on the Oregon model or, or other states who have similar laws. Um, and, you know, this isn't, this, like you say, this isn't a replacement for yeah. what, what, a what, you know, mind med or compass pathways or some of these types of companies are, are doing like, that's, that's medical, that's through the FDA, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and that's, that definitely has its place. And I, I imagine that people who are um, seeking healing will probably be able to maximize therapeutic benefits through uh, those kinds of rigorous therapeutic protocols that, people will have to go through ordinarily to access it through those channels. And those channels definitely should exist. Um, you know, yeah, uh, but absolutely. I think there's tons of room for both and not, not everybody needs what Western industrial medicine offers, but 
some people do, and thank God it's there. Yeah. You know, it's if you if you need a good analogy, and by the way, I view all of this as as a very easily solvable non-problem. And the analogy is this: in our own profession as attorneys, I don't know if Oregon has this, but Arizona sure does. We now have licensed document preparers. They can provide some of the same services we as lawyers provide, but these folks are not lawyers. Yeah, far, far I actually. I actually sit on uh, the committee on the Oregon State Bar. It's called the Paraprofessional Licensing Implementation Committee. <laughs> you guys uh, have a way better name. Ours are just called document preparers. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds way really, more fancy. Yeah, really more, really just a lot of a lot of syllables there. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but I think it, it seems possible that they'll actually be able to, in limited instances, uh, go into court and represent. Uh, at least in landlord tenant court and represent people in eviction proceedings. Which yeah. is and, and as far um, as like being territorial as a person who participates in the profession, I am not the least bit threatened by document preparers. I don't mind that they exist. They don't take food off of my plate. They don't take customers or clients away from me and they don't do what I do and I don't do what they do. And there's room for both of us. Well, you don't practice family law. <laughs> oh, dude. My first year of practice I did, and I swore after that first year, never again. Never again. Never again. No, no, no. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I sit on the committee. I'm obviously in favor of uh, people who have less education doing you know legal work to, again, keep costs low and keep it affordable and kind of start to close the access to justice gap. Um, yeah, but anyway, uh, we digress. <laughs> well, we're, we are closing in on almost two hours here. How, how are you doing? You want to keep going or should we, uh, save the rest for another day? Yeah, I don't, yeah, I'm, I'm good with, uh, wrapping around now. All right. Um, well, what's your final word on Oregon, John? And, and absolutely we'll be having you back soon. So, uh, don't fear if we leave anything, uh, still on the table that we haven't covered yet. But what's what's final word for today? Final word, uh, yeah, it's, I don't know. It's, I, you know, it's just an exciting time to be alive. And, you know, this is, uh, this is, this is cutting edge stuff. And again, it, I think I said this last time, it just feels like every day history is being made and, uh, you, know, yeah. you know, the conversations are happening and, um, it's it's kind of just an exciting time to be alive and to be paying attention to this because this is going to be, I think this is going to be a total paradigm shift in a lot of ways once, uh, you know, society, you know, it's kind of like the war on drugs shut it down large part because of, you know, people of color, uh, targeting people of color and, and the anti-war movement and the connection between the anti-war movement and uh, and psychedelics, uh, you know, is is you know, an interesting one. <laughs> and it's, it's just kind of interesting to see. Uh, yeah. Did you see there was an article in scientific American a while ago about how somebody was saying that they were afraid of psychedelic uh, kind of reform or, or, you know, because, you know, uh, that article from Johns Hopkins with Catherine McLaren and Griffiths and I forget who else about the potential for psilocybin to increase the trait of openness uh, and openness is a is a hallmark characteristic of liberals and progressives. And I, I'm paraphrasing here. <laughs> Why should all society be so uh, rushing headfirst when 
you know, psychedelics are this political issue. Yeah, because God forbid we should ever want to encourage empathy and love. That would be horrible. <laughs> horrible. Could you imagine society where people were more empathetic and loving? What a horrible yeah. place to live. Ugh. Yeah. I, <laughs> but can I tell you, though, kidding aside, I travel in a number of different forums online just to try to keep my finger on the pulse as much as I can. And I have seen no shortage of super conservative people who are very much involved with psychedelics. So the extent that people believe psychedelics in all circumstances make you more liberal, make you more empathetic, make you more loving, don't believe it for a moment. It absolutely can, but it can just as equally exacerbate your opposite traits. It could make you, uh, well, more of an asshole. So, you know, yeah, I, I, I think it can be a lever to improve uh, human self-realization, but I think if you're not really willing to put in the work, it won't. Yeah, I've been kind of haunted uh, continually by this QAnon shaman, the so-called QAnon shaman who you know, was, I think, on psilocybin uh, when he broke in. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for saying that. Cause I didn't want to get specific, but you're right. Like a lot of the QAnon people, they're big into psychedelics and I frankly don't want them around. Yeah. I mean, that's why what Groff calls them the non-specific amplifiers of mental processes. And maybe, mm-hmm. maybe that makes you a kinder, gentler, more loving person, or maybe it makes you a more rigid. Yeah. Psychedelics are a tool. It's what you do with that tool that makes the difference. And for anybody who's under the impression that psychedelics are going to follow other Western medicines, meaning take a pill, go about your day, wrong, 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 completely wrong. You've got to put the work in and you've got to be willing to look at yourself and go and introspect and face the things you fear and change the things that need to be changed. And if you don't put that work in, you're just the same person you were taking psychedelics. Which is why it's so important that we get it right. Absolutely. Which is why the integration session, thus we come full circle, John, is made available under the Oregon program. Hopefully multiple of them. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think people should be afraid of having an integration session. I don't think everybody needs it, but I don't think anybody should be afraid of it. Yeah, I mean, in an adult use setting, it could be patronizing to tell somebody you really need to process that really great time you had last night or whatever. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. A a good trip can be as revelatory as a bad trip, as revelatory as a neutral trip, for sure. Yeah, and, you know, even if it's uh, just pure pure fun and and not really any profound insights, you know, like, I don't know, like I think that's going to happen, and I think that's probably well that it does. Indeed. Although, you know, the other other is, you know, my personal interest is in the other stuff. But, um, you know, you know, there's room for everyone, I think. A- absolutely. Absolutely. So if folks want to track progress in Oregon, is there a, a clearinghouse website, any agency that's uh, posting regularly or, or putting things into public view that people can go view? That's actually one of the really disappointing things about this, which is why I feel so compelled to keep uh, talking with you or anyone who will listen <laughs> yeah. about this because there's actually been virtually, I, I shouldn't say no coverage of uh, the truffle report. I think it's uh Ritka, Ritka Dudley. I want to say is her name. Uh, she's done quite a bit of pretty good reporting on it. 
Um, but that's about it. There's not been very much at all. Um, and given the kind of gravitas of, of what's at stake here, um, I'm kind of surprised there's not more people, certainly in the uh, psychedelic kind of world, that are, are talking about the specifics of, of this, because I think it's going to have wide ranging and long lasting implications, uh, whatever organ decides. Oh, yeah. um, you know, and I saw that uh, you probably saw too. I think it again was Tim Ferriss with Michael Pollan funded at Berkeley, a school of like a program that to, to, to dedicated to psychedelic journalism. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. Psychedelic journalism, which, by the way, yes, that's needed. That is absolutely needed. It's so, man, you just keep touching on all these episodes I've recorded. I have 11 shows in the hopper I haven't posted yet, which I've got to get to. But one of them, I am talking about uh, that crappy article that I sent you a couple of weeks ago where the reporter was talking about the guy who had taken psilocybin and went off and did a murder. Yeah, yeah. So you read the article for the listeners. You'll there's an episode I'm going to post on the show that you can watch it and listen to this. But yeah, it was a news article out of Florida, and and the reporter mentions psilocybin mushrooms a few times in the article because apparently this guy claims he took some mushrooms and went off and killed somebody. But you read the whole article start to finish. Nowhere is there a causal link between the mushroom and the murder. It's just that the guy had incidentally mentioned he took a mushroom, but literally nothing about it was related to what he did or why he did it. So my, my criticism of that was this was a reporter who latched onto the sensationalism of a mushroom and decided to pepper that into the story. And it was gratuitous. It had nothing to do with the story. And, and this is my fear is we're going to see these propaganda pieces pop up again as psychedelics start to sort of hit the main line. And I, I really hope journalists take a more serious approach to it. So I have a standing invitation. If you are a journalist and you're writing about anything related to psychedelics, if you have literally nobody else to talk to, come talk to me. I'll talk to you. I, I, I give interviews all the time and I don't mind. I'd rather you got it right than got it wrong. And I'll do what I can to help. Yeah. And, and that's what the, the, the part about that article that I found uh, offensive was most offensive was that you know, it, it didn't mention anything about it and it didn't mention, you know, it, it did definitely point the finger and tried to sort of like blame the mushroom for the murder. And it didn't go into any detail about whether this person had like a prior history of, uh, of violence yeah, or, not, nothing. or, you know, nothing at all, nothing about who he was. Uh, it just like, Oh, well, it's like once you've identified that a murderer uh, had some, even if it was a trace amount of psilocybin in their system at the time, that's the end of the story. You know, you don't yep. need to go any further in the mind of these yep. uh, you know, naive journalists because that there's what else do you need to know? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, it, it, you know, like it's it's the article didn't mention anything about what kind of socks he wore. <laughs> right. So, I mean, the socks could have been as much a causal link to the murder as the mushroom. Yeah. But we'll I mean, never know because the journalist didn't talk about that either. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I hope as a movement we can uh, I, I saw on the uh, there's a really exciting California uh, initiative that I need. to. I haven't actually got a chance to read yet. But, oh, they're um, they're decrim bill. Yeah, uh, that's uh, measure five one nine. No, 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 no. Okay, not the decrim bill. There, there's a full-on adult use psilocybin. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. You're right. They are yeah. kicking that around too. Um, and they posted something on their page that was kind of um, 
kind of expressing, you know, deep sympathy for, for, for this. And, you know, as a, as a movement, we really do need to be, uh, and I say movement, I know it's deeply fractured and, you know, we don't seem to agree on a ton of different things, yeah. if anything at all sometimes, but you know, to the extent possible, we, we really do need to be, you know, self-regulating, self-policing. And yeah. uh, when we find out about things like this, I think it is incumbent on us to, to dig in and, and, and really find out why, why these things happen and, you know, what, what could have been done different to, to really, you know, to combat this kind of, you know, these, these sensational journalism that you, like you put it. Well, yeah, let me, let me um, pitch something here in full throated support of the Oregon psilocybin program in direct connection to this article. So what you've got is a murder that took place and okay, you've got a journalist who was titillated by the mushroom presence but we have a murder that took place. We have a human being who took another human being's life because of some reason. We don't know. But you have to assume there was some degree of emotional outburst, if not full-blown mental illness. So now let's tie this into the Oregon program. So you get this Oregon program standing up and you get people coming to visit and having these experiences. Isn't the potential for this Oregon program serving as maybe somebody's very first opportunity to come to knowledge that maybe they have an issue that needs to be addressed. I mean, what a great thing this program can do is to uncover this for people who didn't know about it or didn't recognize it for what it was. And now they can go intervene and get help and overcome these problems before they become worse or manifest in ways that are not constructive. Yeah. Hopefully if there is some kind of, uh, you know, there, there might be the indication for, for, for doing, you know, I don't think we, we know this yet, but eventually, I mean, this is just such a brand new area that, you know, I think once Oregon comes online, there's just going to be an explosion of research. One of the, one of the really cool things about um, the informed consent uh, document that you alluded to earlier is that it, one of the, the questions is, do you consent to sharing abstracted information of yours. Oh with yeah. I saw that in there. I saw that in there. Yeah. Researchers so that we can get a better understanding for a lot of this stuff. But, um, you know, we will probably find out at some point there is, you know, all kinds of, of, of things that lead to other things. Like if you start putting like AI on, you know, <laughs> this kind of stuff and, you know, you could probably find all kinds of connections that seem illogical and counterintuitive and, uh, you know, oh, yeah. but but that's that's kind of the, the interesting benefit of, in some level of, of that sort of technology. But um, you know, I think uh, there'll be a uh, you know, there's going to be research, and we're going to find that that some people um, do have crazy reactions uh, that that weren't known, and hopefully those are discovered in a good way. As in, like you have this profound insight, and you realize you see yourself more objectively, and you know, you you discover this kind of rough edge of, of yourself in a in a uh, in a safe and <laughs> informative way, rather than wow, you just had this mental break, you did something that was really damaging to yourself or to someone else, uh, and that's you know, hopefully the the program is uh, you know, we, we will our, I think our screening tools and our and our understanding of the contraindications are going to rapidly increase once this gets going. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, the, the opportunities for intervention and palliative care 
for all sorts of anxieties and, and, and mental illnesses. Yeah, this is everything the program is going to deliver. It's going to be really good. Yeah. So, yeah. Thanks, Gary. This has been yeah. great. I appreciate the opportunity to yeah. come and share um, my Tell, tell you what, sorry, sorry to interrupt you there, John. It just occurred to me, since you said Oregon doesn't have a, a, like a proper website to post this stuff, the materials you sent me, are those public documents? Yeah, so those that would be the clearinghouse. And, okay. And I guess, I is, guess what, is that literally yeah. the universe of everything right now? Yeah, well, no, no, there's, there's a ton. Uh, and, and they've started doing a much better job of uh, posting these things for public consumption for a while um, you just, the only way to get them would be through a, you know, either knowing somebody or doing a public records request. Mm. And now they've shifted. I think they probably got enough public records requests that they just started putting them up there so okay. that they're available right. for everyone to see. Um, but that's not, I mean, the volume of stuff that's there, uh, might be unwieldy if you're just like, there's not something you know, you can just go to and, and get a, get a digest or something. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's just the raw documents. I, I, I was going to offer, cause I, you're aware, I just had the psychedelic Lex website revamped and I now have an online psychedelic law library that currently only has four items on it. Cause I haven't posted all my other collection yet uh, in the background. I've got hundreds and hundreds of PDFs that I'm sorting through so I can get them up there. But if you've got stuff that's public, for the psilocybin program, I'm happy to add it to that library and I'll post it all uh, on the website. Yeah, that's just such a terrific project you're doing with that, Gary. I think um, when Joe Moore and I were doing our uh, class on the religious use of psychedelics, I racked up a pretty large pacer bill <laughs> trying to track down, uh, you know, court cases and trial transcripts. Yep, and yep, yep. <laughs> I'm, try I'm trying to make this all publicly available for no charge. So, yeah. Um, uh, Absolutely. So send me that stuff. I'll, I'll the stuff I've got. Obviously, you don't have to send me again. But if you've got anything else, send it, and I will get it up on the library. It might take me a few weeks, but I'll, I will put it up on there. Great. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Um, I, I don't usually download them. I just uh, you, you could probably just link to the site because literally everything that's available is, that that I have is. is oh, okay. Yeah. Send send me a link then. I'll do that. Yeah. Cool. All right. And then uh, final note here: if folks want to reach you, how can they do that, John? Yeah, so uh, with my new position at Psychedelics Go as ever a consultant with them, um, you can reach me at my email for them, which is J, the letter J, uh, Dennis, D E N N I S, J Dennis at psychedelicsgo.com. Well, there you go. Well, John Dennis, as always, it is wonderful talking to you, and I look forward to the next conversation, which hopefully won't be too far away, because I get a sneaking suspicion Oregon's going to move fast. Yep. Oh, I hey, and your video's you. back. You get to, ooh, boy, that resolution is really bad. I'm, I'm glad we switched off the video, but you're flowing now. Thank goodness. Yeah, thanks, Gary. Pleasure to be with you again here. Yeah, you're welcome anytime. Anyway, thanks so much. Have a great evening, and we shall chat soon. Have a question about psychedelics and the law? You're welcome to submit them. Please send your questions to admin at psychedelicalex.com. Submission of questions is not an assurance that they will be used on the show.
Also, please be aware that neither the submission of a question nor a response creates an attorney-client privilege between you and the show's host, nor does an answer constitute legal advice. Information provided is for general purposes only. If you need legal counsel, you should hire competent counsel in your community. Thank you.